fiends, and welcome once again to another edition of the Ministry of Horror. I'm your host, Tez, uh, back once again with the ill behaviour. Uh, I'm not ill, don't worry. Um, it's another show. We're doing a Thursday show. The reason being it's a Thursday show, uh, one, I kind of forgot that I probably should have put that out there a bit sooner. I am terrible. My memory is, quite frankly, awful. It is a wonder that I ever remember even to breathe. Um, no, uh, so tomorrow, me and my, uh, my fair lady are off to the theatre. We're going to see the woman in black on the stage. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Last week we went to see 222 A Ghost Story, and if you haven't seen it, uh, you know, you're a, if you're a fan of theatre, um, or even if you're not too sure about theatre, it's definitely worth a watch, I would say. It's quite funny. Uh, it's got a good, tense story. Um, the scares are more jump scares at regular intervals, I guess is the one way of putting it. But um, yeah, it was a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Thoroughly enjoyed it, so looking forward to watching The Woman in Black tomorrow night. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a busy couple of weeks. We are in the spooky season. We are in October and, uh, I've been focusing on the 31 days of horror. Um, yesterday's film was the Night of the Living Dead remake. Thank you very much for Fran for coming in clutch in the discord with uh, ITV of all places having it on their, on their app. So that was pretty good. Pretty useful. Uh, other little bits and bobs I've watched. I need to I need to remind myself. I need to remind myself. Probably should have prepared this, but hey ho. Uh, I've been a I've been kind of worse this year at uh, keeping to watching the films on the specific days. Um. So City Slickers was a couple of days ago i did uh house of wax thoroughly enjoyed that i think it's always criminally underrated it's got quite a bad rap as a really kind of shite 2000s um you know cheap remake of an old film i kind of prefer it to the uh to the original to be honest it's just got a bit more fun to it uh, Meta Horror was Zombieland, I did. Uh, Rob Zombie, I did House of Thousand Corpses. I'm quite glad that I selected that because that is actually a pretty... It, it's quite easy to get muddied down with, oh, God, zombie films are always overly grimy. Every other word is effing jeffing. Blah, blah, blah. But, House of, but Devil's Rejects is sort of known as his best film improving on House of Thousand Corpses. But House of Thousand Corpses, is it's pretty out there. It's pretty wacky. It's a very well-made film, and it's got some decent performances and some d uh, decent, you know, early performances from people like Rain Wilson. Uh, J-Horror, I watched... Well, I've had to watch it in pieces just because I haven't been able to properly... It's like a two-hour film, so I've had to kind of watch moments here and there, but I started A Tale of Two Sisters. Schoolhouse Screams, I've kind of cheated, and I've included one of the films that I'm reviewing today purely because there is a scene that has a school in the background. You know, <laughs> time is a limiting factor these days. Uh, set in space, I went for a film called 3022, which apparently is a horror. It's not. It was boring as piss. Jamie Lee Curtis went with Prom Night. Haven't seen that before. That was uh, interesting. It was all right. Uh, in a cornfield, I went with um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which is all right. It's okay. 
it's okay. It's very much a six to seven of seven out of ten film. And trapped, I honestly can't even remember what I picked for trapped. Um, I'm probably gonna have to look into the Discord. I can't remember what I did for trapped. Circle. I watched Circle on Netflix. Um. If you don't know Circle, it's been on Netflix for a while. It's a bunch of people wake up in a room um, where they essentially figure out that they have to choose, they have to vote for who is to die until there's only one left. It was, it was decent. It was decent. It was decent. So, yeah, we have been watching quite a lot of horrors. Um, today is movie in a movie, which I'd kind of think is kind of a little bit meta. I don't know if it counts. But we're going to go with it anyway. But tonight's watch party after the show is a Amazon original called Totally Killer. Now, from what I understand, when the synopsis of this came out a few few weeks back, or a couple of months ago, it sounded incredibly similar to The Final Girls, or Final Girls, which that is a film within a film. It's a very good film as well. It's a comedy horror. Uh, but this has got a fairly decent score on IMDb, so we'll go with that. Totally Killer. We're gonna, we'll say that that covers it. But I hope everyone's been good. I hope everyone has uh, been catching up on lots of horror, um, you know, and enjoying the spooky season, of course. It only comes but once a year, and it is my favourite time of the year. Uh, so I think now, because, you know, it's a school night, we don't want to be going silly late, we are watching a film tonight, we're going to have to get into the horror news. This is the news. I'm going to let that music play out for a little bit longer. There we go. Because I'm well aware now that... Um, that uh, sometimes I forget to unmute a channel on my stream. And so sometimes the music cues that I play that I hear in my headphones don't come through on the stream. So you'll just randomly hear silence then. This is the news. And I apologise for that. It's very unprofessional on my part. Hopefully this came through, but... Who knows? Hey, we've got Fran in the chat. Fran says cut fits that. Uh, saw that listed on Prime today. Um, oh, what is there a film called Cut? Or are you saying that Total a Totally Killer fits uh, fits the? Um... Oh, right, there's a film called Cut. What's this? A group of film students are determined to finish their horror movie that was forced to stop production after the death of their director Kylie Minogue. Well, they don't realise that every attempt to complete the movie has ended with the vicious murder of all involved. Oh, a Kylie Minogue horror from 2001. That does actually, that does actually fit the mould. We could watch that instead. We we could give that a go. I don't know if um if anyone has seen that. If they're fans, it's a film from 2001, but that does that does meet the uh, the criteria. I think a bit more, because Totally Killer, the blurb is when the infamous Sweet 16 killer returns 35 years after his first murder spree to claim another victim. 17-year-old Jamie accidentally travels back in time to 1987, determined to stop the killer before he can start. Doesn't sound like a film within a film, so yeah, Cut is probably a little bit more apropos. But let's jump into the latest in horror of the news. So... First up, these all come from bloodydisgusting.com, as they always do. This is John Squires. These are the 13 new horror movies and shows that are releasing for Friday the 13th. 
Um, based on the tales of Edgar Allan Poe, Mike Flanagan's final series for Netflix is The Fall of the House of Usher, and the series begins streaming on Thursday, October 12th. The limited series from Intrepid Pictures is based on multiple works from Poe, and it should make for the perfect spooky binge to kick off your Friday the 13th weekend. In this wicked eight-episode limited series based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, ruthless siblings Roderick and Madeline Usher have built Fortunato Pharmaceuticals into an empire of wealth, privilege and power. But past secrets come to light when the heirs to the Usher dynasty start dying at the hands of a mysterious woman from their youth. The ensemble cast will include Carla Gugino, uh, Mary McDonnell, Carl Lumbling, and Mark Hamill. Uh, Bruce Greenwood, who's also in Gerard's Game, in another Mike Flanagan uh, adaptation, is playing Roderick Usher. So I'm intrigued by the House of Usher. I'm, I'm quite a Mike Flanagan fan. I think he tend, generally makes good stuff. It's not so much to the extent where he's someone like a John Carpenter. I mean, obviously, it's a different sort of timescale, but um, in terms of where I'd want to repeat watch his stuff, you know, I enjoyed Jared's game. I enjoyed um, The Haunting of Hill House. I thought Haunting of Blind Manor was decent. Um, and I am slowly working my way through The Midnight Club. I'm not turned off of it. But it's just not sunk its teeth into me. I'll watch an episode here and there. I think it's fine. It's an interesting sort of story. But it just hasn't gripped me to go, oh, I need to see what happens next. Um, Edgar Allan Poe is someone I don't... I've just never really read that much of his stuff. A lot of it's poetry. Or that sort of, you know, format. Um, it's not for me, really, to be honest. But obviously I know that he's uh, one of the godfathers of, uh, of of horror, horror literature. So, yeah, one to look out for. That is coming this week. Uh, October, oh, today. It's how today, there you go. Um, how extreme is too extreme for the haunted house experience? Hulu explores the question in their original documentary, Monster Inside, America's Most Extreme Haunted House. The Huluween original documentary premieres today. It tells the story of Russ McCamey, creator of the world's most extreme haunted house known as McCamey Manor. Hulu previews, what would it be like to be trapped in a real-life horror movie? Monster Inside, America's most extreme haunted house, follows the story of Russ McCamey, the Navy veteran who lures horror enthusiasts into his web. They find themselves pulled into the no-holds-barred world of McCamey Manor, Apologies if you can hear my dogs barking. Uh, a haunt that doesn't end until Russ says so. Originally starting McKay Manor to satiate his love of Halloween, as the haunt grew in popularity both on the ground and on social media, so did the severity of Russ's scare tactics, realising that he was attracting more and more followers as he did so. By cultivating an online persona and a cult-like following, Russ was allowed to display his basest instincts and rewarded with online fame and notoriety. Driven by his personal fixations, he turned his backyard haunt into a bona fide torture chamber, videotaping contestants, particularly vulnerable young women, as he sees how far he can push them both inside and outside of the haunt. I've I remember hearing about this house in the last uh, in the last year or so. I'm sure that it was one of those kind of clickbaity headlines about a haunted house um, exhibit type, you know escape room sort of thing but one you have to sign a waiver for because you're gonna be pushed to your limit 
so hopefully we get that. I mean, Hulu is kind of, I suppose, Disney Plus over here. Interesting to see if we get that. Because uh, that seems pretty pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. Uh, next up, Amber Heard, from All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, returns to the horror genre in director Connor Allen's In the Fire. And Saban Films, Saban Films bring it to theatres and VOD this Friday. The plot synopsis is a doctor from New York travels to a remote plantation in the 1890s to care for a disturbed boy who seems to have inexplicable abilities. She begins treating the child, but in doing so ignites a war of science versus religion with a local priest who believes the boy is possessed by the devil and is the reason for all the village's woes. Uh, Amber T Heard teases the film is a meditation on the almost supernatural power of love told through a strong-willed and independent woman at the turn of the 20th century. I feel honoured to be part of this labour of love and to be the lead in Connor Allen's vision. I feel lucky to be surrounded by such an amazing cast. They're as dedicated and magical as the characters they play. Uh, Lorenzo McGovern Zaney, Sophie Amber, Luca Calvani and Yari uh, Gujluki also star. Hmm, okay. To be honest, Amber Heard is someone I've heard of more through the news media than I have actually films. I'm pretty sure I have seen Aquaman and I know she's in that. I've not seen All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, though. Hmm, there you go. Uh -huh. So Shudder is bringing the creep show back for season four on Friday, October 13th with a six episode binge premiere on Shudder and AMC Plus and new episodes airing weekly on AMC Linear. Uh, based on George A. Romero's iconic 1982 movie, um, Shudder's television series version of Creepshow is executive produced by showrunner Greg Nicotero. Creepshow is still the most fun you'll ever have being scared. A comic book comes to life in a series of vignettes, exploring terrors ranging from murder, creatures, monsters, and delusions to the supernatural and unexplainable. You never know what will be on the next page. Shudder's Creepshow television series originally launched in 2019. Across three seasons now, Shudder's series is always bursting with practical monsters and love for horror movies past, and we expect season four will continue that tradition. So I have seen all of uh, all of the Creepshow TV, uh, TV episodes to date. Um, it's, it's like any sort of anthology, mixed bag. Some of it's decent, some of it's kind of shitty. Um, it is a fun show because some of the stories are quite, quite interesting, quite fun, quite gruesome. What I would say though is I can't. It's unlike the film, and again, it could be because of the age that I'm watching it. I saw the film when I was kind of young, watching these now as an adult. But um, none of the segments have kind of had a lasting appeal. And by that, I just kind of mean that, you know, there's not really been a particular story that I could pinpoint and say that's, you know, there's an episode in series one or series two or series three uh, where one of the stories is this. It's really good. That's not to say that there aren't some good episodes, but just nothing kind of stands out. Nothing has that kind of staying power. Yeah. So next up, set on Halloween 1963, Norman Partridge's novel Dark Harvest is finally headed to the screen this week after a long delay and a couple of years of complete radio silence. 
David Slade, who did uh, Hard Candy, 30 Days of Night and Hannibal, directed the long-awaited adaptation, which brings Sawtooth Jack to digital outlets beginning October 13th. Dark Harvest also releases in theatres for one night only at the Alamo Draft House uh, yesterday. Uh, in a cursed town, the annual harvest begin becomes a brutal battle for survival. On Halloween 1963, Sawtooth Jack, a terrifying legend, rises from the cornfields, threatening the town's children. Um, groups of boys unite to defeat the murderous scarecrow before midnight. Richie, a rebellious outcast, joins the run, motivated by his brother's previous victory. As the hunt progresses, Richie makes a shocking discovery and faces a pivotal choice to break the relentless cycle. Uh, Elizabeth Reeser, Jeremy Davies, Luke Kirby, Casey Likes... Emiri Crutchfield and Michael Gilio wrote uh well Michael Gilio wrote the adaptation, the rest of them star. Uh yeah, I mean that sounds kind of interesting. It's a David Slade directed um directed piece, so he has my attention, is a very talented director. I like I like the stuff that I've previously seen. So uh Dark Harvest. Well, it'll be interesting to see when we get it in the UK. It says digital outlets from October thirteenth, but who knows? Who knows when we get it? The brand new Goosebumps television series from Disney Plus and Hulu is premiering on Friday, October 13th on both streaming services on the very same day. Disney previews the official press for details. The new series draws on elements from five of the most popular middle grade books, including Say Cheese and Die, The Haunted Mask, The Cuckoo Clock of Doom, Go Eat Worms, and Night of the Living Dummy. Now... I don't know if I know the... I think I do know the Haunted Mask, but Cookie Clock of Doom... I think all of these ring a bell, actually. I mean, say Cheese and Die, very obviously. Uh, Night of the Living Dummy, of course. Man, I used to just devour the Goosebumps books but back in the day. Uh, from Disney branded television and Sony Pictures Television, the 10-part series will launch with a five-episode drop as part of Disney Plus's Hello Stream and Hulu's Huluween celebrations with subsequent new episodes streaming weekly the series first two episodes will air on freeform on october 13th as part of its 31 nights of halloween programming plunging viewers into a world of mystery and suspense the new goosebumps series follows a group of five high schoolers as they embark on a shadowy and twisted journey to investigate the tragic passing three decades earlier of a team named teen named harold biddle who also unearthed dark secrets from their parents past Goosebumps stars Justin Long, Rachel Harris, alongside newcomers Zach Morris. Ah, come on. Saved by the bell, come on. Um, Isa Briones, Miles McKenna, Anna Yi Pyong, and Will Price. Um, I mean, I think the main thing we need to know is does it have the theme from the original TV series? Because that was a bop. That was part of the appeal of watching that show was the opening theme. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's that nostalgia there still. I I don't even know if I've... I don't think I've seen the films. I may have seen part of the first film, but it's one of those things where it's like, ah, this isn't, this isn't for me. Um, Fran, the chat. Goosebumps looks quite promising. Believe it's coming to Disney Plus in the UK. Well, I'll, I will have to see if I can uh, check that out when it drops. Certainly will. When the film's debuting, uh, next up as part of this year's massive AMC Fear Fest lineup, is The Puppet Man, a Shudder original that begins streaming on Shudder on Friday, October 13th. 
The Puppet Man, which just won the Popcorn Fright's Jury Award for Best Feature, will be available on both Shudder and AMC+. You can watch the official trailer below. Written and directed by Brandon Christensen, the upcoming horror film stars Michael Paré, Karen Richman, and Alison Gosk. The Puppet Man is a convicted killer on death row. He has always maintained his innocence, saying it was an evil force controlling his body as he slaughtered his victims. Now Mikkel, the killer's daughter, um, begins to suspect that there may be some truth to her father's claim when those around her begin to die in brutal ways. All hope rests on her shoulders to break the Puppet Man's curse. Mm, I mean, it's a Shudder... It's a Shudder original. So you... you uh, who knows? Who knows which way this is going to fall? I certainly don't. Uh, next up, from uh, Raul Cesar, uh, Cerezo and Fernando Gonzalez Gomez, the directors of the Dark Star Pictures' bloody disgusting collaboration, The Passenger, is The Elderly. Following a successful festival circuit, um, The Elderly releases in theatres October 13th. The film will follow on um, Blu-ray and VOD October 31st. Following the sudden suicide of his wife, Manuel begins acting violently strange. Soon the series of paranormal events has all of the local elderly behaving oddly. They all seem to know something the young do not, paired with the lust for blood. Uh, Zorio Aguero stars alongside Gustavo Salmeron, Paolo Gallegro, Irene Anula, Juan Asida, and Angelo Angela Gamonal. Hopefully, I didn't butcher, butcher those names quite too bad. Uh, last, last year's horror comedy series, Shining Vale, never heard of it, is headed back to stars for season two, which is set to premiere on Friday, October 13th at midnight on the Stars app all-star streaming and on-demand platforms and on Lionsgate Plus streaming in the UK. I don't have Lionsgate Plus. Although I will I will know that there was a show on Lionsgate Plus or whatever it used to be called. I'm sure it had a different name before in the UK. Or it might have actually been the Stars. Don't know. There was another app that I had like a free trial for. And that had the Mr. Mercedes TV series, which, if people don't know, is an adaptation with a pretty good cast of the book and the Bill Hodges series, um, ultimately, by Stephen King. That is now on Disney+. Plus. So I wonder... I don't know what the connection is. I don't know which studios, blah, blah, blah. But one to keep an eye out for if you're a Stephen King fan and you have Disney+. Plus. Uh, so, Shining Veil stars Courtney Cox. Mm. Sorry, I was fighting that yawn for a while. Um, Greg Kinnear and Mira Sorvino. Season 1 of Shining Veil introduced Pat and Terry Phelps, a dysfunctional family that tried to run from their problems by moving their kids into a Victorian mansion in the small town, Connecticut. The only problem? It may be haunted. When settled in, Pat encountered Rosemary, a demon who possessed her body and turned her life upside down. When the family steps in to save Pat, they commit her to a psychiatric hospital where she sees an old photo of a nurse who looks just like her demon, Rosemary. Uh, season two kicks off four months later when Pat's insurance runs out and she is released from the psychiatric hospital early. Pat returns home, determined to pick up the pieces of her broken family, but she quickly finds out her children don't need her. Terry doesn't remember her, and to make matters worse, Pat's new neighbour, Ruth, looks exactly like Rosemary. Meanwhile, the house starts to reveal the 
shocking secrets of its dark past. Every mother feels like they live in an insane asylum, but Pat may be right. I mean, I've not seen season one. Um, sounds interesting, I guess. It's, uh, you know, it's got a decent cast. Courtney Cox, Greg Kinnear, Mira Savino. Who knows? Uh, fans of anthology style... God, we've got quite a few here. Fans of anthology style horror, get ready for HeBGB TV, a hyperactive anthology about a multidimensional cable box that makes its way exclusively to Screenbox on October 13th. From Scream Team releasing, the film has drawn comparisons to Pee-wee's Playhouse and Goosebumps, as well as films such as VHS and the WNUF Halloween special. In HeBGB TV, a multidimensional cable box installs itself into a neighbourhood and slowly the world. Two siblings discover a mysterious package on their porch and are taken on a wild channel surfing journey through a world of television mayhem. Welcomed by their new friend, the purple guy, this brother and sister find themselves standing up to the box's algorithm to protect their minds. DIY to its core, HBGB TV is a spooky sci-fi story that takes you through the horrors and laughs of cable television. This film is a cacophony of comical commercials, perverse puppets, and monstrous music with a naughty dose of 90s nostalgia. Watch the trailer below. Um, I mean, when they mention DIY to its core, that kind of gives you an idea that uh, the budget may be uh, not there, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, you know. You get some great low-budget uh, entries. And it sounds pretty interesting. It does have a bit of a throwback feel to the kind of, I guess, accessible horror. Um, you know, I don't know what to kind of uh, liken it to. I guess like a Goosebumps. You know, the sort of... It's horror in that it's got, like, monsters and ghouls and uh, bad things happening, but it doesn't feel like it's too overtly horror i don't know interesting interesting there's a trailer online you can check it out now here's one i am aware of and i am looking forward to the new peacock series john carpenter's suburban screams premieres this friday an unscripted series that features an episode directed by carpenter himself Peacock Previews, the series explores the dark secrets and unspeakable evil that sometimes lurks beneath the surface of the sun-drenched streets, manicured lawns, and friendly neighbours of suburbia. Each episode focuses on one true tale of terror told by the real people who lived through it. Their first-hand accounts are brought to life through premium cinematic scene work, news clips, home photos, and archival footage, combining the visual language of horror films with the tools and techniques of documentaries, creating a uniquely frightening experience for viewers. Each episode will delve into the monstrous evil that lurks beneath the surface of friendly suburbia through the lens of one frightful tale. In addition to first-hand accounts, the episodes will include cinematic reenactments, personal archives, and historic town press coverage. John Carpenter directs one episode in the six-episode series, which is titled Phone Stalker, alongside showrunner Jordan Roberts, Michelle Latimer, and Jan Pavlaki. Uh, and the show's theme was also composed by Carpenter himself, so there you go. I, I watched the trailer for this a little while ago. It does look quite good, and I do quite like the, um, the format of um, the recreation-based documentary or you know i don't know how you'd you'd mention it any kind of different to that really but uh kind of similar to the old sci-fi show sci-fi the health 
show um, called A Haunting, or The Haunting. I've talked about it before, I can never remember its exact title. But yeah, it would discuss particular events, but then it would have interspersed reenactments. Um, so it's like a mini film, really. Interesting. Uh, in the wake of 13 cameras and 14 cameras, Gravitas Ventures will next be unleashing 15 cameras. And the third piece of the trilogy is coming to VOD on Friday, October 13th. From 30 Burn Cinema and Hood River Entertainment, 15 Cameras is written by PJ McCabe and directed by Danny Madden, starring Will Madden, Angela Wong Carbone, uh, Hilti Bowen, James Babson, Shirley Chen, Hannah Mc McKen McKenney, Skylar Bible, Courtney Dietz, Eric Loops, Donna Allen, Brianne Moncrief, Jim Cummings, and Stephen Ruffin. In the new movie, when Cam and Sky brought their du bought their duplex, it seemed like the perfect investment opportunity for the young couple. A starter home, a mortgage offset by renters, and even a guest room for Sky's sister, Caroline. But as Sky and Cam slowly uncover hidden cameras and secrets of the duplex's previous owner, obsession consumes their marriage and they both fall into destructive forms of voyeurism. When new tenants move in downstairs, their fixation with observing others has deadly consequences and they are forced to confront the very things that have been consumed by. I've not even heard of 13 cameras, let alone 14 cameras. So the chances of me watching 15 cameras are slim, to put it lightly. Pretty slim. Uh, oh god, how many more films we got? Okay, we may be on to the last two. We can do it. Netflix gets in on the Friday the 13th on with The Conference, arriving on October 13th. In the slasher comedy, a team-building conference attended by municipal employees spirals into a nightmare when accusations of corruption begin to circulate and plague the work environment. Simultaneously, a mysterious figure begins stalking and murdering the participants, one by one, in this Swedish comedy slasher with warm, humoristic characters. Uh, okay. Nice of Netflix to get a new horror film. Doesn't happen very often these days. Uh, okay. The uh, the imagery for it looks quite interesting in terms of the mask that's being worn by what I assume is the killer. Um, it's kind of like a cartoony. Uh, I don't know how you describe it. It's just like a, a cartoony image of a man's face smiling with a little hat on top. Yeah, <laughs> not much more I can say on that. Uh, and then finally. Lionsgate and BuzzFeed are bringing the creepy viral story Dear David to the big screen with a brand new horror movie this Friday and it'll also be available on digital at home. On August 7th, 2017, popular cartoonist Adam Ellis began telling the story of how a dead child is haunting his apartment and is trying to kill him. His first tweet gained over 55,000 retweets and 76,000 likes, explains the website Know Your Meme. Ellis originally tweeted my apartment is currently being haunted by the ghost of a dead child and he's trying to kill me. The tweet became a, t became a thread documenting the alleged haunting. In the film, shortly after comic artist Adam, played by Augustus Prue, responds to internet trolls, he begins experiencing sleep paralysis, while an empty rocking chair moves in the corner of his apartment. Uh, as he chronicles increasingly malevolent occurrences in a series of tweets, Adam begins to believe that he is being haunted by the ghost of a dead child named David. Uh, encouraged by his boss to continue the Dear David thread, Adam starts to lose his grip on what, is, uh, on what is online and what is real, based on the viral Twitter thread by BuzzFeed comic artist Adam Ellis. 
I've never even heard of this meme, tweet. Maybe I'm just very out of the loop. But a film based on a, a tweet thread. That's got to be a first. Uh, and that is it for... No, it's not it for the news, is it? That's it for the new films. We've still got some news headlines to discuss. Apologies, I keep switching around in my seat, getting uncomfortable with sitting here all day for work. Um, now, it wouldn't be a Ministry of Horror show without us talking about Halloween, would it? Uh, but I'm not going to mention the one that I always bloody mention. But this is news. John Scrobs by disgusting Halloween and Miramax slashes into the TV rights to the franchise. In the wake of Blood Disgusting's exclusive report about Malik Akkad's Trankass International film shopping the TV rights <coughs> excuse me, to the Halloween franchise, with Miramax and A24 in the mix, Deadline has officially confirmed today that Miramax has landed the TV rights. Deadline reports Miramax Television has signed a wide-ranging TV a deal with Trancast to develop and co-produce a Halloween TV series, which also includes a first-look agreement on other television projects for the international marketplace. The site's report continues, the new Halloween series is envisioned to potentially launch a cinematic universe spanning film and television. Miramax's head of global TV, Mark Helwig, will be overseeing the franchise creatively in close collaboration with ACAD. Jointly controlling both the film and TV rights would allow Miramax and Trancas to map out an integrated film-TV universe, Deadline Reports also notes. As a reminder, Miramax co-owns the Halloween film rights alongside Trancas. We couldn't be more excited to bring Halloween to television. <coughs> Um, Helwig said, We are thrilled to expand our long and successful partnership with Trancast and the brilliant Malek, uh, Malek Akkad in introducing this iconic franchise to a new form of storytelling and a new generation of fans. Trancast International Films is extremely enthused to be expanding our long-standing relationship with Miramax and we look forward to working with Mark Helwig and the entire team in creating this new chapter. So... Does this mean a new version of Michael Myers is coming to TV? Or do we anticipate this will be like other prior TV shows of horror film franchises that it may not even feature Michael Myers? Maybe it will take the format of Halloween 3 and run with that as a series. Um, the difficulty is... I could see that happening and working, I could understand it. But the name of Halloween, you associate with Michael Myers. And if you don't associate it with Michael Myers, you associate it with Jamie Lee Curtis. If you don't associate it with Jamie Lee Curtis, you probably associate it with at least uh, Donald Pleasance or Danielle Harris. But Michael Myers is first and, uh, first and foremost the face of the Halloween films. I don't know. I don't know what they'd do with this. I'm not sure. I It wouldn't surprise me if they went down following Michael as a kid in the sanitarium. Sanatorium, whatever it's pronounced as. I don't want to see that. We kind of got a glimpse of it in Rob Zombie's Halloween, which it had its ups and had its downs. It was by no means a good... A, it was by no means a really good film. It's not terrible. It's not bad. It, there's some promise there. There's some good kills. It is overtly nasty in its violence. Uh, the, the dialogue's terrible. But um, 
the moments with the younger Michael were, pr were pretty interesting. That said, do I want it in the TV series? Probably not. So I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a requel, isn't it? Or it's going to be a reboot. Reboot, requel, remake. It's going to be one of those three. Who knows? I, I, do th I do still think if it hadn't been for the last two films, I'd have probably been a bit more hyped for a TV series. But now in my head, I'm like, what could they do? What could they do? Now, if you're a collector, speaking about one, you know, classic uh, horror horror icon, going on to another one. If you're a collector, did you know that the original screen-worn Freddy Krueger glove from the original Nightmare on Elm Street is now up for auction? Um, it's been located and put up for auction by Prop Store this week. The prop has been screen-matched, meaning Prop Store was able to verify that it's the original same metal glove armor and razor blade fingers worn by robert england in the original nightmare on elm street um what do they mean by glove armor armor you might be wondering proper store notes replica rings have been lightly tacked into the finger interiors to allow the metal work to be displayed on a replica leather glove work glove as the original leather glove is no longer present proper store describes the one-of-a-kind prop as follows freddy krueger's uh, screen matched Hero metal glove, it's hero metal, uh, glove armor and razor blade fingers with an original hand drawn design schematic from Wes Craven's original A Nightmare on Elm Street and Jack Shoulders' sequel A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge. Um, I mean, the, the current absentee bid for this incredible piece of horror history is already over a hundred thousand dollars with bidding scheduled to end on this particular lot on Thursday, November 9th. I mean, that's going to go for some... I mean, 100,000 is already crazy money, but that's going to go for some serious wonga. Um, okay, interesting news headline next. John Carpenter thinks Big Trouble in Little China would make for a good video game. That comes from Mike Wilson, Blood Disgusting. Once again, it's no secret that John Carpenter is a fan of video games, and one of the most beloved films in The Thing made for a pretty good romp in video game form. But Carpenter thinks that one of his other films would make for a good video game adaptation in Big Trouble in Little China. In a chat with comicbook.com talking about what other films he's done that would make for a good video game, Carpenter mentions another of his collaborations with Kurt Russell in 1986's Big Trouble in Little China as being ripe for an adaptation. I don't know, I think maybe, and this is his quote, um, maybe Big Trouble in Little China. It seems to me that would be a fun video game and kick-ass. There's also, by the way, a Thing card game. Um, I mean, there's lots of these games. There's actually a They Live board game. I think we talked about that on the show, actually. I don't know that there would ever be a Prince of Darkness game. I don't see that. Yeah, Prince of Darkness is cool, but I don't know how you'd adapt that into a game. Uh, despite Carpenter's doubts about Prince of Darkness adaptation, the film's cosmic horror overtones would no doubt fit in nicely with other Lovecraftian video games. As for Big Trouble in Little China, that too could work, with the idea of Jack Burton being something of a parody of macho main characters that could lean into a sort of serious Sam vibe. At the moment on the video game front, Carpenter is involved with focused home entertainment and Saber Interactive's Toxic Commando, which was announced earlier this summer and is aiming for release on PC and consoles next year. Um, I, I mean, Christ, talking about Carpenter, there's a lot of fan-made Halloween games, and Michael Myers has appeared in, I think he's in Fortnite now, 
Um, he's in uh, Call of Duty. But he's not a proper official decent. I'm going to say decent because I know that there was a lot of official games in like the 70s and 80s. Um, so we've had the thing. Big Trouble in Little China would make sense. Escape from New York, I think, would be a very good. I mean, obviously Snake Plissken is, uh, is uh, you know, solid Snake inspiration. But that would, that would be a solid, excuse the pun, game. Uh, what else? I mean, In the Mouth of Madness could be, very much be like a Lovecraftian type game. Those uh, first person story story focused games like Call of Cthulhu and um, whatever the recent Innsmouth game was there, there were two um, there were two HP uh, Lovecraft games that came out at a very similar time can't remember what the other one's called uh, I could see that in the Mouth of Madness being in that sort of style Yeah, I think they're the main ones that kind of stand out as potential for a uh, for a good video game entry. But anything with Carpenter on it, I'm gonna I'm gonna be involved in. Uh, and then finally, some sad news: Texas Chainsaw Massacre three director Jeff Burr has passed away. But disgusting has learned the sad news today that uh, prolific horror filmmaker Jeff Burr, who notably directed Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre part three, has passed away. He was just sixty years old. Prior to making his mark on the Chainsaw franchise with the fan favorite, is it a fan favorite? Um, the fan favorite third installment, Jeff Bird directed 1987's Vincent Price, starring From a Whisper to a Scream, 1986, uh, 1989 Stepfather 2, Make Room for Daddy. Uh, he later directed 1993 sequel Pumpkinhead 2, Blood Wings. Never seen it. He his directorial credits also include Puppet Master 4, Puppet Master 5, and Night of the Scarecrow, as well as The Werewolf Reborn. Phantom Town, The Boy with the X-Ray Eyes, Straight into Darkness, Devil's Den, Resurrection, Gun of the Black Sun, Tornado Warning, and in more recent years, Puppet Master Blitzkrieg Massacre. Friend writer Shane Bitterling writes on Twitter tonight, just got an awful phone call. One I've had uh, far too many of recently. Our pal Jeff Burr suddenly passed away last night. One of my first friends in LA and one of the best. Sad, sad days. Uh, Bitterling adds in a follow-up tweet, We all know Jeff Burr for his horror movies, Takes Strange to Musker 3, etc., but please seek out his Straight Into Darkness, maybe his finest and one he was the most proud of. Called by somebody at test screening, Mario Barber's Thin Red Line, a visually stunning poem of war brutality and freaks. Uh, rest in peace, Jeff. Yeah. Sad, sad news. I mean... Sounds like there's quite a few horror films that he's done that I've not seen. I need to keep an eye out for. I've not seen any of the Pumpkinhead sequels. Um, and I don't think I've seen Stepfather 2. I, I vaguely think I've seen Stepfather. I've seen the one that's got Jonathan Brandis in it. I know that. I don't know if that, which one that is. But yeah, sad news. Um, R.I.P. Jeff Burr. Now, that has been the horror news. That was the news. <laughs> and just as the horror news ends, we're now in for the reviews. Should use that as an opportunity to swipe some water.
bouche. So I've watched a ton of films, and some of them have been new. I know, some of them have actually been new. Uh, the first one, and I'm going to try and keep these brief, because like I say, we've got four films to review. We're also, and I completely forgot to mention it at the top of the show, we are doing the Exorcist discussion tonight. So we are going to be reviewing Exorcist Believer. And as I mentioned a few shows back, when we do Exorcist Believer, we are also going to talk about the Exorcist franchise. So... This could be a late one, but I'm going to try not to keep the show silly long, even though we've got a few films to review. Yeah. Okay, first up is one I watched. It's not a new, new film. It's new this year, but I've only just got around to watching it. And that is Cocaine Bear. Cocaine Bear has released also as Crazy Bear in some countries. It's a 2023 horror comedy film directed by Elizabeth Banks and written by Jimmy Warden. It's loosely inspired by the true story of the cocaine bear an american black bear that ingested nearly 75 pounds or 34 kilograms of lost cocaine the film stars kerry russell o'shea jackson jr christian convery alden Aaron um Ehrenreich, brooklyn prince uh, isaiah whitlock jr margot martindale jesse tyler ferguson and ray leota it is dedicated to leota who died in may 2022 um, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, Cocaine Bear was released in the United States on February 24th, by 2023, by Universal Pictures. Uh, it made 89 million against a production budget of 30 to 35 million. So, as we usually do, I'll give you the brief sort of start of the blurb, and then we'll kind of just get into my thoughts and what I liked, what I didn't like. 1985, drug smuggler Andrew C. Thornton uh, II drops a shipment of cocaine from his plane. He attempts to parachute out with a drug-fueled, drug-filled duffel bag, but knocks himself unconscious on the doorframe, causing him to fall to his death. His body lands in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he is identified by Bob, a local detective. He concludes that the cocaine is likely from St. Louis drug kingpin Sid White, and the remainder is missing. Meanwhile, in the Chattahoochee Oconee National Forest, an American black bear eats some of the cocaine, becoming highly aggressive and attacking two hikers, Elsa and Olaf, killing the former. So this is very much a comedy horror. Uh, it is kind of played for laughs. Now, the bear's kills range from comedic to quite, quite insanely violent. Um, the the bear is incredibly CGI, which of course it is. I mean, it would be quite difficult, I imagine, to use practical effects, or maybe they used a mixture. I'm not sure, but it did look very CGI. Um, but that's probably just more of a practicality standpoint. Um, I mean, I guess there's worse CGI out there. It's not distractingly bad or anything, but. There are some violent kills in this. Um, I think because the tone a lot of times is quite comedic, because we're being a comedy horror, then there's never really a feeling of any peril, even though there are moments where people are trying to hide or trying to get away from an enormous bear, tearing them apart, or it's, you know they've just seen it tear someone apart that they know. But it doesn't really use the comedy to break the tension more of it's a comedy film that happens to be having violent attacks in every so often but even they're kind of played up for laughs i suppose 
it's produced by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who are quite a uh, quite a team. They've done tons of things together. I think they're involved in um, community TV series. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. I know they're the Twenty One Jump Street films. Twenty One to Twenty Two Jump Street. Now I'm second guessing myself. Did they do community? No, they didn't. Where did I get that from? No idea. How I Met Your Mother. They worked on that. There we go. Um, Performance-wise, no one really stands out. I mean, Kerry Russell is front and centre, but... Everyone's kind of almost performing like a parody version of a character. Considering this is meant to be based... I mean, this is loosely based on a true story. It is essentially played up for laughs. Um... And that would be fine if it was funny. I don't really think it was that funny. Um, it didn't massively hold my interest, I'll be honest. So for that reason, I'm giving it 5.5 out of 10. Uh, shot well. Some of the bear attacks are gnarly. But um, I didn't think it was that good, to be honest. Uh, so next up. We have a film I saw, I think we discussed maybe a little while ago, there's a new film coming soon, but it is on Sky, and as soon as I read the blurb, I was like, okay, okay, that's got my interest. I watched Unwelcome, a 2023 folk horror film written, uh, well, film directed by John Wright, co-written by Wright and Mark Stay. It stars Hannah John uh, Kamen, Douglas Booth, Jamie Lynn O'Doyle, um, Colm Meany, and Christian Nairn. So you got some pedigree in there. You got, you know, you got some Game of Thrones actors. You got uh, Jamie Lynn O'Donnell is from Derry Girls, which is a very good Channel Four comedy. Um, I don't know what Douglas John Booth has done, but don't feel I don't think it's that good. Um, <laughs> but young couple Jamie and Maya live together in London after learning that Maya is pregnant Jamie celebrates with her only for them to be attacked by a gang of hoodlums Maya is left unharmed in the aftermath of the assault Jamie and Maya take the opportunity to move to an idyllic new home in rural Ireland inherited from Jamie's great aunt Maeve after her death the house requires some work prompting them to hire the local Whelan family as builders they are troubled by a warning from Niam an old friend of Jamie's aunt, that they should leave an offering of liver at a door of the house's back garden every night for the red caps that live in the forest, but accept it as a harmless superstition. So, the opening of this, I mean, I'll just kind of jump into it, that this film has some really good fights in it. It's not like a fight film, like a Jean-Claude Van Damme film, you know, Stallone film. But in terms of, I guess, accurate portrayals, portrayals of, of violence, it's done pretty well. So when uh, Jamie goes to, to celebrate, the reason they get attacked in the opening of the film is he leaves their flat and goes down these stairs to go across to a corner shop. And there's the three, I guess you call them chavy, lout types, um, utes. Well, I don't know if they're utes, but they're because they're in their like twenties. But chavs, essentially, 
um, who are there trying to sort of get in his face, like, you're all right, mate, you're all right, how's it going? What, you don't want to talk to me? You don't want to be my friend? You know, that kind of shit where it's just like, okay. And Jamie just sort of walks past like that. I'm just going to the shop, I'm just going to the shop. And when he comes out there again, getting all up in his face and... You know, he's he's picked up a bottle of alcohol-free Prosecco, and they're like, oh, oh, is that champagne, is it? Oh, you're a rich guy, are you? Oh, you think you're too good for us? You think you're too good to talk to us? And he powers through, gets to the top of the steps, and turn around, turns around and goes, no, you fucking morons. It's Prosecco, alcohol-free, actually, because my girlfriend has just found out she's pregnant, so we're going to be celebrating. Fuck you. You know, he's had a Billy Big Bollocks moment. This leads them to this leads to the gang to breaking into the flat, beating the shit out of Jamie, attacking uh, Maya. I think she does get some kicks on the floor. I mean, she's just found out she's pregnant. Um, knives are involved until the police get there. But it's it's quite a tense opening to the film. Um, the appearance of the actors like Colm Meany, he's a very good actor in that he can be quite funny and and charming uh one moment but he can seem like quite terrifying and stern and intimidating the next uh another another actor that does that quite well is christian nairn who um who was hordor in game of thrones uh he plays a bit of a bumbling idiot in this you know the the simple brother of the family but there's a moment where he kind of turns and that turn is done incredibly well because he's a very big lad very very you know large chap and when that's played into the style of oh you know i'm just a everyone picks on me they don't understand me it's a bit endearing but when the mask drops or when they have a moment of well, I want something now, and that what I want is going to happen. It's very, very freaky, very freaky. Uh, now, the red caps in this, the red caps uh, who live in the forest, they look fucking brilliant. I was so surprised by how they looked in this film, and it's a damn shame. It's a, you know, it's an Irish um, UK co-production. I didn't ever hear of this getting a cinema release at all. No doubt it it didn't. Um, yeah, it was released on digital basically at the same time. So it just sort of was put out to, to flounder. But um, this is from the same director who did Grabbers. So I, I do remember us discussing this in the, uh, in, in the chat when this was announced. I've not seen Grabbers. But in this, the red caps... Like, if that is purely um, digital effects, bravo. Bravo to the digital team. If they used real-life actors and then did the um, did the techniques like, like Lord of the Rings with the Hobbits uh, to, to make them look smaller than they are, then bravo. But the red caps in this look incredible. I honestly thought they looked brilliant. It just the film itself just is, is shot gorgeously. It looks great. Um the moments when things kick off later in the film where things get quite incredibly violent and there's fights for for life and there's fights for revenge. It's quite brutal. It is quite brutal. It comes across quite genuine. Um 
And do you know what? I wasn't expecting to enjoy this that much. I'd kind of thought, oh, it sounds interesting. I think it had like one and a half out of five stars on Sky. Whatever that means. I don't know where their ratings system comes from. Um, but, I mean, I don't really have anything bad to say about Unwelcome. I guess the only bad thing is that it's not more well-known. It It really kind of had that feel of like a more adult amblin type film you know it kind of felt like it was in the vein of gremlins or you know critters to 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 an extent um they're different types of creatures here obviously different motivations and all that stuff but it did kind of have that feel in places which again is why it's quite like annoying that this didn't get like a proper a proper release with proper advertising you know, why Why make the film this well and not give it the opportunity to to make some money? I don't know. I think it's a shame. Maybe it's because they didn't have a big name star in it, you know. I mean, quite often with Irish, uh, Irish films or Irish um, United Kingdom co-productions, they just are kind of stuck in that indie area where you have to kind of rely on the home media or or whatever to to make a bit of money but it just it doesn't it doesn't seem fair um performance wise yeah i'd say everyone's pretty good douglas booth is playing the he reminds me quite a lot of one of the characters in 222 a ghost story where it's just because i don't know if it's just because of how they sound but they they just instinctively sound like a bit of a toff who's trying to slum it but it's just a bit of a toff don't know um no one's bad in this film there's nothing really bad about it uh, I'm I'm going to give it an 8. 8 out of 10 for Unwelcome. I'd thoroughly recommend checking it out. It's currently on Sky Cinema, so if you do have Sky Cinema, you can watch it for free. Um, otherwise, keep an eye on streaming platforms. If you want to rent it, give it a go. I, I think it's really good. Really well worth the watch. Next up in the review bonanza, Saw X. Saw X is a 2023 American horror film and the 10th installment in the Saw film series. Uh, serves as a, both a direct sequel to Saw and a prequel to Saw 2. Directed by and edited by Kevin Gruter and written by Paul Goldfinger and Josh Stolberg. The film stars Tobin Bell and Shawnee Smith reprising their roles from the previous films with Sienove McCody Lund, Stephen Brand, Renata Vaker and Michael Beach. Set between the events of the first two films, John Kramer travels to Mexico in hopes an experimental procedure may cure him. Um, later discovering a scam within the operation. As retribution, he kidnaps those responsible and subjects them to his trademark death traps. Originally intended to be the ninth installment of the series, the plot of the film was postponed in favour of the spin-off titled Spiral from a story pitched by Chris Rock. A tenth installment was reported to be in development with Twisted Pictures in April 2021. Um, yeah, we don't need to go into all that. Uh, it's made for a budget of 13 million. It's already grossed 58.2 million, um, which is pretty good. Pretty good, pretty good. So, what did I think of the film? Well, that's quite interesting. That I mean, they got the look of the film back. It has that orangey sepia sort of filled, you know, look. And I guess that's inherited with uh, cinematic representations of like Mexico. Um, but it just, in terms of also in in the factory scenes or in the uh, the games, it has that feel back from the first four or so films. 
where it's kind of like the contrast is a bit overblown. So it had that look to it, which is really good. Um, it's interesting in that John Kramer is front and centre in this film for, I guess, maybe the first time, really, uh, in terms of he is the main character that we're following. He is our protagonist. Now, the thing to remember is you can always say, well, John Kramer's always been the protagonist of all the films. To an extent, I mean, he is kind of really more the antagonist who just has understandable motives. Um, and that, you know, yeah, he's technically he isn't killing anyone. He's giving everyone the opportunity to redeem themselves, to save themselves through sacrifice. So that is an argument you can have there. Um, but this is the first time where we are essentially following him as our protagonist. And I quite like that, to be honest, actually. I'm, normally when film or tv tries to go the route of here's this despicable character obviously not so much john kramer but here's this despicable character or this this antagonist but we're now going to make you care about them and we're going to make them you know relatable we've always known john's story is that you know he developed brain cancer he had his near-death experience he decided that uh if people are bad people and get to live scot-free, then they should have to prove that they want to live because he has another opportunity. So it's a very interesting premise and setup. All makes sense. Great. But here he meets someone at a cancer support meeting who was terminal. And a few months later is the picture of health, seemingly, um, and tells him about this controversial treatment this controversial doctor or the daughter of a controversial doctor who's doing a treatment and the reason it's all in secret is that the pharmaceutical companies don't want this treatment getting out there the reason being pharmaceutical companies make so much money off of um the current treatments that work or to an extent or you know but don't cure and if there was a cure then that stops their revenue stream. So they don't want that. Which again, that's quite an interesting, it's quite a believable setup. Why would pharmaceutical companies that make a lot of money from providing treatments uh, want a cure to be out there because then their treatments are useless, if that is the case? Um... But as you can imagine, things don't quite go to plan. And we'll kind of leave it there in, in that regard. I suppose I'll go about the negative first, because there aren't really many negatives. If, if There's not really even like a handful, just a couple. And they're, again, they're not even really negatives. They're more like nitpicking. Um, I suppose the red herring or one of the sort of dangly fruits of someone being on John's side are kind of obvious that that's not the case, that they are being a, playing a role and that they're not actually who they say they are. Again, keeping this kind of vague, it's a brand new film, so I don't want to go too much into plot, plot details. I found that was quite obvious. Um, also, during the latter stages of the film, the the villain of this film, because obviously John's our, our protagonist, is a little bit cheesy. There's there's some dialogue scenes where it is a bit like, 
Oh, so they're they're incredible. They're they're quite happy to allow people to get dismembered to protect themselves. And you could say yes, that's part of the story because it's showing how much of a self-centered person they are. They're all about money. They're all about personal wealth. It's just a little bit cheesy. But that being said, the games, brilliant. Uh, the gore, you know, it's it, it's top notch without going grotesque, which is what they kind of did with around Saw Three to well, Saw Three, really. Um, the games, yeah, they're pretty good. Shawnee Smith's good in this, although it's quite funny because obviously she's like twenty years older now, or however long it's been since Saw Two. And uh, she's got the haircut from Saw 2, which just looks like it's done by herself in five minutes. It's quite funny. Um, but her performances are quite good. There's also another returning character in a post credit scene. You may already be aware of who that is or not, but um, worth sticking around, you know, after the initial credits before the long scrolling credits. Uh, I think this is, it's a good sequel. It is a good sequel. It's a, it's a fun romp. Um, I'm especially enjoying it more after having done the recent Saw binge for the Saw show that we did a, a few shows back. I would say, yeah, it's one of the best sequels. Um, I think it's because our protagonist, even though he's putting people in these awful situations, this has kind of almost got one of the clearest protagonists versus people that have wronged him. Um... And we have these moments where John or, or specifically, um, Shawnee Smith's character are kind of rooting for them to overcome the task because, you know, look, I've done it and I'm, I'm, I'm a better person now for it. So, you know, if they can, they can do it, they, they, they deserve an opportunity. And he's like, well, they've got an opportunity, which is true. So it's, you've, you've got that kind of clear, almost clearer distinction because with the original films, you know, our protagonists, quote unquote, had something in their past or something that was, I guess, why they're involved in the game in the first place. Um, and sometimes it was kind of harder to root for them in some instances. I guess because they're just going through themselves seeing they're either getting tortured themselves, they're seeing torture, torture, or I say torture, games. They're putting different games. But with this one, um, yeah, it did feel a bit more kind of streamlined, but not in a bad way. Uh, I guess in a more accessible way. So I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I think it put Victoria off watching any more horrors with me for a little while, because bless her, she does like a horror, but um, they can scare her a little bit, um, especially if you're watching it late at night and then going going back um, back to bed. They'll play on her mind for a little while so she won't sleep well. And where we'd watched insidious the red door saw x the nun to a few films at the cinema surround sound whatever she needed a break from horror and i did i did explain to her we, we are entering october now where i will be watching a horror film every day you know i'm quite happy to watch them by myself you know <laughs> but 
yeah she she was like fine I, I need a break from horror films and i was like that's fine by me honestly it's cool um but i enjoyed this i think we both gave it the same kind of post cinema score of a seven and a half out of ten it's good it's a decent sequel um it's got some great set pieces tobin bell's brilliant in this um and sean is pretty good as well 7.5 out of 10 and now we get on to our last review and which will then eventually lead us into our featured presentation the exorcist believer the exorcist believer is a 2023 american supernatural horror film um directed by david gordon green who co-wrote the screenplay with Peter Sattler from a story by Scott Teams, Danny McBride, and Green. The sixth installment in the Exorcist franchise, it serves as a sequel to The Exorcist from 1973. The film stars Leslie Odom Jr., Lydia Jewett, Olivia O'Neill in her film debut, Jennifer Nettles, Norbert Leo Butts, and Anne Dowd, along with Ellen Bernstein and Linda Blair reprising their roles from the original film. I probably should have read ahead of that because... That's a little bit of a spoiler. Apologies. Um, yeah. That's me just reading Wikipedia verbatim there. <laughs> the plot follows a photographer who must confront the nadir of evil when his daughter and her best friend are possessed. Jason Blum serves as a producer of the film through his Blumhouse production banner along with David and James G. Robinson through their Morgan Creek Entertainment banner. So, in Haiti, photographer Victor Fielding and his pregnant wife, Serin, blessed by a voodoo practitioner, are on their honeymoon until a massive earthquake ensues. Serin is gravely injured, and paramedics tell Victor he must choose to save either his wife or his unborn child, Angela. Thirteen years later, Victor has lost his faith in God since Serin's death, while raising Angela on his own. One day after school... Angela ventures into the woods with her Baptist best friend, Catherine. See, they went to school, and that was one of my school set horrors. There's a school in one scene. Um, uh, with her best friend, uh, Angela, into the woods with her Baptist best friend. Oh, sorry. Angela with her Baptist best friend, Catherine, to perform a ritual in, in an attempt to contact Angela's mother. Victor realises his daughter is missing and contacts Catherine's parents, Miranda and Tony, as a three-day manhunt ensues. So, I made no bones about it that my feelings of a new Exorcist trilogy from David Gordon Green after the last trilogy he did ended were sceptical at best and uninterested, really, in how it could work because... We'll talk about the Exorcist series and kind of how it's progressed or regressed at times, more often than not. Uh, that's kind of then led us to this point. But we should start with... We'll start with the good, and then we'll do the bad. And then we'll talk about my score. So the good. Leslie Odom Jr. is a great lead in this as the father who is trying to protect his daughter, um, doesn't have any religious faith after what occurred and what caused the death of his, you know, what, what led to the death of his wife. Um, and is trying to make sense of what is going on with his daughter. Um, and Dowd is fine in this. The girls 
the girls' performance when they're under the root of possession is very good. It is actually very good. The trailers, I initially thought, oh, fucking hell, it's a typical, oh, I've got a possessed voice, you know, doubled up voice sort of thing, and the contact lenses that make the eyes kind of yellow or green, whatever, typical, typical, blah, blah, blah. But no, their performance is really good, actually. The other good is... We very, very partially briefly, very, very partially briefly get a shot, I believe, of Pazuzu. So one of my favourite things in the original Exorcist film is the little subliminal images that flash up. They originally only happened, I think, twice in the original release, and then in the director's cut, the version you've never seen, there's about five or six of them. But the best one is when um, Father Karras is having a dream about his mother coming out of the subway station, and then we get the flash of uh, Pazuzu. Very good, or Captain Howdy, whatever you want to call him. We do, I believe, get a very, very brief image of him here. He isn't the demon in this film. We do also see that demon. But again, very briefly. So, the, the, what I'm trying to get at is one of the other good things here that we haven't really seen, to my knowledge, in any other Exorcist things outside of the original, is quick glimpses of, in this instance, hell, or something akin to that. Again, it's very hard to say, because it only happens for split seconds, I think maybe twice in the entire film, but those are done very, very well. So, goods, we've got Leslie Odom Jr., The Girls Possessed, seeing the a or a couple of demonic entities that's the kind of shit that i like because it's like oh shit what was that that looked cool but i only caught a brief glimpse of it so what can i remember of that you know that gets me intrigued okay like that the first hour of this film is pretty good okay um and i'm i am being complimentary because Initially, I remember when the test screening reaction came out, how bad it was, and I was like, oh, fucking hell, God. Oh, God, this can only be awful. The first trailer dropped, and I remember thinking, it generally looks crap. There's a couple of little moments that look like they could be okay, but on the whole, 95% of it looks crap. The second trailer dropped. I again thought this looks shit. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. But again, there was a couple of little moments. I don't know if it was because of how they were using the classic tubular bells music or or what, but there was a couple of moments, just very brief moments in that second trailer that I thought, mm, I can't pinpoint them right now, but, the, you know, a couple of little moments that I thought, okay, interesting, interesting. So, when it comes to the bad, the film is a bit messy to say the least. Um, the pacing after that first hour is a little bit all over the place. Uh, we get through some crazy moments that it almost seems to be like they had a time limit cap. Like, this feels like maybe if it had been given an extra 20 minutes, you could have smoothed some of those things out, maybe? I'm not sure. I mean, there's things in the story that are what they are, and that would maybe need to be 
looked at again but if we're looking at the pacing it does get a bit rushed and muddled and messy in the second the second uh 50 minutes or so um chris mcneil is back in this ellen bernstein she is good i mean she's a great actress you know she's she, she's she's good some of the lines of dialogue that she given that she's given are quite cringy. There's a kind of a famous memeable one going on now where the priests she you know, she's quite open that I didn't actually witness the exorcism. And that was something I thought, okay, good, because the way it was looking is that she was coming in as a an exorcist savant, you know, she was coming in as an expert on exorcism. And I remember thinking but she didn't actually, she wasn't actually there for the exorcism. She wasn't. Sorry, my dogs are going crazy. Um, she wasn't actually there for the exorcism itself. Um, but she addresses that with, with kind of a cheesy line. She says, uh, it's something along the lines of the, the priest wouldn't actually let me witness the exorcism. Something about the patriarchy. Patriarchy. I don't know. It, it it fell a bit flat. But essentially what has happened with her character, and this isn't really spoilers, you can see all this stuff online, um, when she is introduced and within the first hour. And she doesn't have a major she's she's got a role in this film, but she's not starring like Leslie Odom Jr. You know, don't expect her to be filling up your screen time. But when she comes in, essentially she wrote a book about what happened with Regan back in the 70s. And Regan hated that and just really couldn't forgive her mum for that and went into hiding or just sort of left and didn't ever tell her mum where she'd gone. So Regan is missing in this film. Um, and her mum's just like, I'm, you know, I'll kind of forgive myself for that. You know, I want, want my daughter back and all that stuff. But her character arc felt a bit rushed in terms of what uh, what occurs with uh, with her involvement in the story. The exorcism itself, which isn't a spoiler because it's the, the exorcist, it's going to have an exorcism in it. We'll get into why that caused issues in, in some of the sequels later on. The exorcism itself is quite good, I do think. It's a little bit kumbaya, which will make sense when you watch it, if you haven't seen it already. Um, but again, it's it's a film where there are the moments with the pacing where you sort of think, fucking hell, what's, this is sort of jumping around and it's, what is going on here? But there are moments during that exorcism when it's kind of got going and, and things are progressing with the story that are quite intriguing. Um, and I do think the finale was quite good, actually. I th I, I think there were some mo some moments where I was just like, "Oh shit, okay, that's pretty cool." Oh shit, we're actually getting to see that. So I do think that credit where credit's due. Again, it's all vague because I don't want to give away spoilers. But there are those there are a couple of moments where it's just like, "Okay, that's kind of interesting." I don't hate what they've done there. What I will say, 
is this film does feel like a self-contained film, and I think that's fine. It's connected to the first film, it's ignoring the sequels, that's fine as well. It is taking uh, a story element from the TV series, which I will just view as a homage, because normally TV shows get ignored you know, and it, it's not that TV show isn't considered canon anymore in this universe because it's a direct sequel, ignoring those. But it takes a story element of you know Chris McNeil uh, writing a novel about it, causing a rift with her and her daughter. That's straight out of the TV show. But yeah, so it doesn't feel like part one of a trilogy, which I think is good because I wouldn't want to watch a film where it just has a cliffhanger ending. You know, it's got enough in there, but um, but then again, I guess if I'm going to still talk about the bads, the other bad would be I don't know if this is a David Gordon Green template or if it's more of a modern thing, because I, th I, I think it's probably more of a modern thing or a modern approach gone here, because 2018 Halloween wasn't afraid to linger on shots wasn't afraid to give shots room to breathe. There's quite a few moments in this, not not all the time, quite a few moments where you've got big jump cuts. There's a moment when the girl's found earlier on in the film. Guy screams to his dad because he's just like, what's going on here? And it's like, dad, dad, cut. You know, action cuts to to other scenes. So again, I guess that falls into the feeling rushed criticism. So, what kind of score am I going to give Exorcist Believer? Now, bear in mind, I went into watching this expectations low. And even when I was seeing all of the hyperbole, you know, on, on social media, I'd seen part of the review of Mark Commode tearing it a new one. And I do like Mark Commode. And I know he's very attached to The Exorcist. Um, he was never going to give this a good review unless the film was incredible. Uh, but more often than not, a lot of modern horror doesn't really seem to like and that's fair enough. He's got his, his got his, you know, his views, and I do, I do respect. I mean, you know, I've talked before a lot of his horror introductions to things like The Exorcist or Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre were quite influential to me, and bigged up the importance of those sort of films. So I don't think this is a great film. I think it would be a bit of an upward struggle for this to be a great film. But I don't think it's as bad as it's being made out to be, in my opinion. And everyone's entitled to their opinion, whether they, they liked it or not. All I can say is, even though I heard all this, I still wanted to see it for myself. I fucking love the cinema. I love uh, going to the cinema to watch a new horror film. I found that the cinema where I now live is really good. I really enjoy going there with my girlfriend. I, I like going to the cinema by myself. You know, there was hardly anyone in the screening to this. I went by myself in the daytime. I just sat at the back stuffing my face with popcorn. Uh, having, a, having a great old time. So I was going to watch this regardless. Um, out of curiosity. D do I think David Gordon Green's redeemed himself in the horror community? No, probably not. Um, it seems as though we will still be getting the sequel because they've signed up for these three films. Um, this film hasn't done gangbusters, but it's only been out a couple of weeks, but it's normally the opening weekend, and I don't know when it releases in other territories, maybe it'll do better then, but it's not done amazing. It's so far done 52 million against 30 million budget. 
you know, it's still a profit, but it's not amazing. Um, but I don't think it's as bad as people are making it out to be personally. I feel it is a solid 6.5 out of 10. I think a 6 would be a little bit harsh, but I don't think it's good enough to get a 7. I liked the very, very brief shots of the demons. I thought they were really cool. I liked what happened in the finale. Um, I liked the post-finale, where we got a little, a little scene, a little legacy scene. I mean, I've already buried the lead at the start. Um, but I like those moments, actually. And I think that the girls when they're possessed are really good. And I think how the cobbled together exorcism went was actually quite good. Like, not, not, and that's not even me sort of bullshitting or anything. I did actually think how that progressed in the finale of it was quite good. The setup of it wasn't that great. And it's really like a strong 45 minutes to an hour as a decent a decently strong 45 minutes to an hour and then it just gets a bit wishy-washy and kind of cheap and kind of cringy but then the final like i guess 15 minutes 10 15 minutes 10 to 20 minutes we'll just say was all right actually it was all right i think um so yeah i think in the in the the discord Brand recently said, is it uh, Exorcist Kills or Exorcist uh, Ends? Exorcist Kills. It's not Exorcist Ends where I'm just like, what the fuck? Wait, what the fuck? What's happened with these characters? And I guess another criticism I should say is a lot of the characters are half-baked. You know, one of the great things with The Exorcist is we spent so much time with Chris and Regan. And Regan's possession took a long time to really kind of take hold as to the Regan that we see all over the artwork um so that made it even more tragic now they can't really repeat that over and over again I think modern audiences are especially when it comes to a horror sequel have shorter attention spans so you're not going to be reaching with a horror sequel the uh mainstream that you would with something like a big Academy Award winning film like The Exorcist where you can take that time I don't know, maybe they could have done but um, it felt like we initially were getting that we were initially getting that with the introduction and the, the disappearance the disappearance, there's some interesting discussion with uh, religious reasons as to why the kids both had blisters on their feet but weren't aware of why they'd been gone for three days, they thought they'd only been a few hours interesting ideas there but then it kind of just goes from naught to 75. It's, it's it's an odd film. I think there's promise in there. Does that mean I'm hyped for The Exorcist Deceiver? Which I think I called Believer Deceiver a couple of weeks ago. It's my bad. No, I mean, I'm still not hyped for a new trilogy. I don't see the point. I think do a good film and then move on from there. I, I Just this idea of we've got three films mapped out. If you're looking at that approach, do TV. <laughs> <laughs> you know just do tv um but yeah i generally generally enjoyed this um 6.5 out of 10 right 
There we go. Let's quickly move on now, not to the news, to our... And we are, of course, talking more about The Exorcist. Of course we are. We're talking about The Exorcist. We're talking about the film series and the TV series. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna miss that out. So, The Exorcist is a media franchise that originated with William Peter Blatty's 1971 horror novel of the same name, uh, which itself was inspired by the 1949 exorcism of Roland Doe. Um, and most prominently was featured in the 1973 film adaptation of the novel and many subsequent prequels and sequels. All of these installments focus on fictional accounts of people possessed by Pazuzu, the main antagonist of the series and the efforts of religious authorities to counter this possession. The films have grossed over $661 million at the worldwide box office and the novel has sold over 13 million copies. So if people have never read the novel, I read it way too young at school. Not as part of school, but just in school. Um, it's it's incredible, and there is an audible release of it, which is very good. It's like a performance, very good. I do keep meaning to get the BBC Four radio play of it on on Audible. I think I have actually stacked up quite a few credits that I just haven't used for the last few months. So, uh, mayhap I will, mayhap I will. Um, so, where to start? Of course, we will start with. Uh, well, we're going to talk about the films. We're not going to talk about the novels. I will just mention that uh, in terms of the novels, we had The Exorcist in 1971. There was a sequel novel called Legion in 1983 connected to um, The Exorcist. And that was then made into the film The Exorcist 3, to a degree. But we'll get into that when we uh, when we get there. So, The Exorcist... 1973 American supernatural horror film directed by William Friedkin from a screenplay by William Peter Blatty based on his 1971 novel of the same name. I'm hearing some weird sounds from downstairs. I'm scared. <laughs> the film... Uh, star, the film follows the demonic possession of a young girl and her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism by two Catholic priests. Blatty, who also produced, and Friedkin, his choice as director, had difficulty casting the film. Their choice of relative unknowns in Bernstein, Blair, and, uh, and Miller, instead of major stars, drew opposition from Warner Brothers Pictures executives. Principal photography was also difficult, taking place in both hot deserts and refrigerated sets. Many cast and crew were injured, some died, and unusual accidents delayed the shooting. Production took twice as long as scheduled and cost almost three times the initial budget. The many mishaps have led to the belief that the film was cursed. Um, it was released in 24 theatres in the United States on December 26, 1973. Reviews were mixed, but audiences waited in long lines during cold weather. The sold-out shows were even more profitable for Warner, since they had booked it into those theatres under four wall distribution rental agreements, the first time a major studio had done that. Some viewers suffered adverse physical reactions, fainting, or vomiting to, uh, or vomiting to shocking scenes, such as a realistic cerebral... 
angiography. Many children were allowed to see it, leading to charges that the MPAA ratings board had accompanied Warner by giving the film an R rating instead of the X rating to ensure the troubled production and its commercial success. Several cities attempted to ban it outright or prevent children from attending. At the end of its original theatrical run, the film grossed $193 million and has a lifetime gross of $441 million with subsequent re-releases. The cultural conversation around the film helped it become the first horror film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, as well as nine others. Platy won Best Adapted Screenplay, while the sound engineers took Best Sound. Uh, it had several sequels and was the highest grossing R-rated horror film, unadjusted for inflation, until It. The Exorcist had a significant influence on pop culture, and several publications regard it as one of the greatest horror films ever made. Uh, around the can the chat Pazuzu now just makes me think of Danhausen. Gotta love that Danhausen. <laughs> um So 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 for me The Exorcist is a film where my opinion has changed greatly over time. When it came out on VHS um when did it get its UK release on VHS? Because it had been banned. It had been banned for a long, long time. God, there's a lot to read here. We're not going to go through all that. No way, sorry, Jim. Home media. All right, okay. Well, I think it was around like 98, 99 that we got it in the UK. Um, that was a lot on this Wikipedia page. When it came out, I remember me and my dad going down to MNW's, uh, One Stop, whatever it was called at the time, to rent it on VHS for me. Uh, my dad had seen it in the cinema and he said, oh, you know, I watched it in the cinema, I walked home by myself in the dark and it was fine. I was like, oh, you're hard. You're cool. Um, <clears throat> we rented it out and I watched it. And I think I was probably a bit young to appreciate one, a you know, two hour plus film. Uh, and two, this kind of level of horror. So I was watching it going, oh, God, it's taking ages. Oh, this is slow. Nothing's happening. Blah, blah, blah. Not really even noticing any of the flashes up of Zuzu. Um, seeing the the effects. I'm thinking the effects were shit. Um, generally thinking it's quite laughable. And what was the big fuss about? I didn't watch it again for many years. And it was only when I then got into my mid-twenties, I suppose, that I caught it again. Maybe on TV or something. And it just had me a bit more transfixed this time. I'd read the book and <clears throat> one of those things of reading it at a young age and probably not really processing a lot of it properly, just sort of like, you know, focusing in on, oh God, look, it's got some naughty words in it, you know? But then <clears throat> after catching on TV, reading the book again, I was like, it's a really strong story, actually. Like there's a lot of it that I just didn't just flew over my head as a kid, like the the belief that Regan possessed had killed Chris McNeil's friend and you know she's then fearing for one what what she can do and also that you know 
could she somehow be connected or convicted? And then the daughter's lost her, her life going to prison and all this stuff, along with the fact that something is clearly wrong with her daughter and none of the doctors seem to know what it is. Um, <clears throat> all of that had a bit more kind of prominence and, you know, the, the mental health aspect as well, that going to these doctors and they're just like, we can't really find anything wrong with her and clearly something is wrong with her and there's this thing those nuances that as a kid you don't really sort of appreciate or don't take much notice of that stood out a bit more to me noticing more of the pazuzu face flashes i always just thought it's so simple of just a, a white painted face with darkened eyes um you know fake sort of gnashy like yellow teeth and uh you know all the sort of the the makeup there and it's quite basic and then like the red eyes or the various sort of colored eyes but it's incredibly haunting incredibly haunting on those brief moments when it appears um and this is something that's then kind of just stuck with me and become almost one of my favorites i i recently picked up I had to stop myself from pre-ordering the £70 version because I thought, mm, it's just a bit too much. But this beautiful 4K uh, copy of The Exorcist, which features both the original theatrical cut and the extended director's cut. I watched a little bit of it the other night and it does look really good. You know, sometimes with 4K releases, you can just be like, yeah, uh, is it 4K or DVD? This looks all the same. It does look lovely does look lovely um so aspects of blatty's novel were inspired by the 1949 exorcism performed by jesuit priest william s bowden it sold poorly until blatty captivated the dick cavett show's audience with a discussion of whether the devil existed soon afterwards the novel topped the new york times bestseller list despite blatty's previous screenwriting experience on blake edwards films studios had been uninterested in adapting the exorcist before publication Lou Grade made a modest offer for the rights that Blatty said later he would have accepted due to his difficult financial circumstances, but for his requirement that he produce. Sherlyn McLean, a friend of Blatty's, had been interested but wanted someone other than Blatty to produce. A later agreement to co-produce with Paul Monash, producer of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, collapsed over script differences and Blatty's discovery that Monash was trying to wrest control of the film. Blatty's screenplay follows the plot of his novel closely, but narrows the story's focus. Subplots like the desecration of the churches and the subsequent relationship that develops between Karras and Kinderman, Karras's efforts to convince the church bureaucracy to, improve the to approve the exorcism, and the ongoing medical investigations of Regan's condition are less prominent in the film as are supporting characters, including Chris's household staff, Dennings and Regan's father. The overall time frame is condensed. Some scenes, particularly those with sexual content, were toned down for the movie since an actress of approximately Regan's age was expected to be cast. The scene where Regan masturbates with the crucifix was, in the book, more prolonged and explicit, with Regan seriously injuring herself yet attaining orgasm. The film also excludes the possessed Regan's constant diarrhoea, giving her room a strong, foul odour. 
Yeah. Blatty also made the screenplay unambiguous about Regan's condition. In his novel, every symptom and behaviour she exhibits that might indicate possession is counterbalanced with a reference to an actual case where the same phenomena were found to have natural scientific causes. Aside from Karras' initial professional scepticism, that perspective is absent from the film. Um, so the other thing as well was that... Uh, that always shocked me about this film was I always assumed because Mac von, Max von Sydow played Lancaster Merrin, the lead exorcist that when I realised how old Max von Sydow was you know, he, he only died at the age of 90 uh, three years ago but I always assumed that he was geriatric when this was made in 73 that's just makeup. That's just really good makeup. I always, for the longest time, just thought, well, he must have died in the 70s or 80s. Like, no, it wasn't. I think he was in his 50s at the time of the film being made. No, 40s, 50s, yeah. Madness, madness. Um, uh, well, there's, there's quite quite a lot, of, a lot of other bits and bobs to kind of go out go on about in this scene uh, I guess one of the famous moments that I always heard was apparently terrifying but I I never thought it looked that good was the spider walk scene um, it, 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 it was deleted from being, I think it was deleted from being too too terrifying um, no but, okay, so this is kind of interesting. Stuntwoman Anne Miles performed the spiderwalk scene after two weeks of practice. Um, Vercutier had designed a special harness, but she did not need it due to her college gymnastic experience. Friedkin cut it over Blatty's objection just prior to the premiere, believing it came too early in the film. Whether the scene had been shot at all was debated for, by fans for years afterwards. Friedkin denied having done so until Commode... Uh, found the footage in Warner's archives in the mid-90s while researching his book on the film. It was restored in the director's cut, albeit with a muddy, grainy look that one critic said made the film seem superfluous, using an added shot showing Regan with blood flowing from her mouth. Miles was not credited. Websites devoted to, oh God, to the film in the early 21st century gave credit to Sylvia Hager after the 2000 re-release. Um, the confusion may have arisen from Vakuti's website where he credited her and described the harness he had designed. He said the scene was cut because the harness could not be erased in post-production. According to Miles, Hager, her light double, could not do the scene even with the harness, which Coutier had hoped to mark it afterwards. Uh, since Miles was able to do the spider walk without it, she believes he left her out of his account for commercial reasons. The misidentification, Miles said in 2018, cost her jobs afterwards and some producers believe she was falsely taking credit for Hager's work. Since then, with the intercession of the SAG, she has been properly credited. Um, we should also talk about the injuries and uh, the production difficulties, which have given it a bit of a a bit of a reputation. Uh, due to production problems and accidents on set, The Exorcist, originally scheduled for 85 days of principal photography, took over 200 days to wrap. The film went $2.5 million over budget, ultimately costing the budget, the, the studio, $12 million, um, which, adjusted for inflation, is $59.8 as of 2021. 
Early on, the shooting was delayed six weeks after a bird flew into a circuit breaker on the house sets, starting a fire that destroyed all of them, except for Regan's room. Later, another set was severely damaged by the sprinkler system. The 10-foot statue of Pazuzu was shipped to Hong Kong instead of Iraq, causing a two-week delay. Injuries to cast and crew also affected production. Bernstein and Blair have lasting consequences from back injuries. Bernstein's occurred during the scene where the possessed Regan throws Chris backwards. The take used in the film left her unable to film for two weeks and on crutches for the rest of the shoot, with a fractured coccyx. It has caused her chronic problems due to inadequate early treatment. Blair fractured her lower spine after being too loosely strapped to the rocking bed, a take also used in the finished film. She developed scoliosis with long-term health effects, as well as a lifelong aversion to cold from all of her time in the refrigerated bedroom set, wearing only a nightgown and long underwear. A carpenter cut his thumb off, and a lighting technician lost a toe in different accidents. Other people connected with the film, or their family members, died. Uh, McGowan a week after completing his scenes as Dennings. Malarius also died, like her character, before the film was finished. Deaths among the crew, or those close to them, included the night watchman, the operator of the refrigeration system for Regan's room, and an assistant cameraman's newborn. Jesus. Blair's grandfather died during the first week of production, and von Sydow had to return to Sweden after his first day shooting when his brother died, further delaying shooting. One of Miller's sons nearly died when a motorcycle struck him. Several years after the film's release, Paul Bateson, the technician in the angiography scene, was convicted of murdering journalist Addison Verrill. In 2015, Hatcher, the World Heritage Site where the prologue was shot, was damaged by ISIL militants. Fred can believe there must have been some supernatural interference. I'm not a convert to the occult, he told the horror film magazine Castle of Frankenstein, but after all I've seen this film, I definitely believe in demonic possession. We were plagued by strange and sinister things from the beginning. Vakutia said he felt I was playing around with something I shouldn't be playing around with. Uh, to mollify the crew, Friedkin asked Father Bir- um, Birmingham, the film's technical advisor, to perform an exorcism on the set. Birmingham instead blessed the cast and crew, believing that an actual exorcism would only make the cast more anxious. Ooh. So a lot... Uh... Oh, this is also interesting about the Pazuzu. The alleged subliminal imaging... Wilson Brian Key devoted a chapter to the film in his book Media Sexploitation, alleging repeated use of subliminal and semi-subliminal imagery and sound effects. In addition to the Pazuzu face, he claimed that the safety padding on the bedpost was shaped to cast phallic shadows on the wall and that a skull face is superimposed into one of Father Merrin's breath clouds. A 1991 Video Watchdog article examined the claim with stills of several uses of subliminal flashing. I saw subliminal cuts in a number of films before I ever put them in The Exorcist, Friedkin told the authors, and I thought it was a very effective storytelling device. The subliminal editing in The Exorcist was done for dramatic effect, to create, achieve, and sustain a kind of dreamlike state. In a 1999 interview, Blatty said, There are no subliminal images. If you can see it, it's not subliminal. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, let's move on. So that was a huge success, of course, of course. Uh, and what happens when a horror film is generally successful? That's right, it gets a sequel. Now, this sequel came about before the sequel book, I believe, um, Legion. But 1977 saw the release of Exorcist Two: The Heretic. 
uh, supernatural film directed by John Borman and written by William Goldhart. Second installment in the series and sequel to The Exist, it stars Linda Blair, Richard Burton, Louise Fletcher, Max von Sydow, Kitty Wynn, Paul Henride, and James L. Jones. The plot is set four years after the previous film and centres on the now 16-year-old Regan McNeil, who is still recovering from her previous demonic possession. Exodus 2 The Heretic was released in the United States on June 17, 1977 uh, by Warner Brothers. The film received generally negative reviews from critics and is often considered to be one of the worst films ever made. It was the last film to feature veteran actor Paul Henride. Despite earning over 30 million domestically against a 14 million production budget, the negative reception meant that the next film in the Exorcist series would not come until The Exorcist 3 in 1990. Mm. This is, I mean, is a, this film is shite. Uh, there's no, there's not really any redeeming features in this. Um, it tries to show the scenes of the moment of um Merrin's death did we need to see that i don't think we did i don't i don't think we did um god it's a messy film uh so i'll read a little bit of it if people haven't ever seen the Exorcist 2, but uh, Philip Lamont, a priest struggling with his faith, attempts to exorcise a possessed girl in Latin America who claims to heal the sick. However, the exorcism goes wrong and a lit candle sets fire to the girl's dress, killing her. Afterward, Lamont is assigned by the Cardinal to investigate the death of Father Lancaster Merrin, who had been killed four years earlier in the course of exorcising the Azarian Azar demon Pazuzu from Regan McNeil. The Cardinal informs Lamont that Merrin is facing posthumous heresy charges because of his controversial writings, as church authorities are trying to modernise and do not want to acknowledge that Satan exists. Regan, although now seemingly normal and staying with her guardian Sharon Spencer in New York City, continues to be monitored at a psychiatric institute by Dr. Jean Tuscan. Regan claims that she remembers nothing about her ordeal in Washington, D.C., but Tuscan believes that her memories are repressed. Hmm... It's just—it's so bad. There's like a succubus in the film. Um, there's a really uncomfortable moment where the possessed succubus version of Regan is trying to seduce the priest, and she's literally sixteen at the time of this. I'm pretty sure it's just—and the priest is like in his fifties. It's really awkward. It's really awkward. It's not not. Uh, it's not cricket at all. Um, uh, and the fact that it's got Linda Blair in it and Max von Sydow from the original, I hope they got paid well, because what the fuck? What the fuck? This is so bad. So neither William Peter Blatty or William Friedkin, um, of the, the writer and director, uh, producer as well, The Exorcist, um, had any desire to involve themselves in the sequel. This was because they had filed lawsuits against both the studio and each other over profits, credits, and Blatty being barred from post-production during the first film. According to the film's co-producer, Richard uh, Ladera, Exorcist 2 was conceived as a relatively low-budget affair. 
What we essentially wanted to do with the sequel was to redo the first movie, have the central figure, an investigative priest, interview everyone involved with the exorcism, then fade out to unused footage, unused angles from the first film. A low-budget rehash, about three million of the exorcist, a rather cynical approach to movie making, I'll admit, but that was the start. What the fuck? That sounds terrible. Uh, playwright William Go um, Goodhart was commissioned to write the screenplay titled The Heretic. Uh, he based it around the theories of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the Jesuit uh, paleontologist archaeologist who had inspired the character of Father Merrin in the original novel. Goodhart's screenplay took a more metaphysical and intellectual approach compared with the original film. Here, the battle between good and evil would centre on human consciousness, with a specific idea that, within the framework of Catholic theology, human consciousness could be brought together as one through technology, although this would also result in conflict between those who sought good and evil. Uh, Sam Osteen initially agreed to direct the film, but never officially attached himself to the production. British filmmaker John Borman signed on to direct, stating that the idea to make a metaphysical thriller greatly appealed to my psyche. Years earlier, Borman had been considered by Warner Brothers as a possible director for the original film, but he turned the opportunity down because he found the story rather repulsive. However, he was intrigued with the idea of directing the sequel, explaining that every film has to struggle to find a connection with its audience. Here, I saw the chance to make an extremely ambitious film without having to spend the time developing the connection. I can make assumptions and then take the audience on a very adventurous cinematic journey. Oh, dear. Linda Blair agreed to reprise her role of Regan McNeil for The Exorcist 2, but refused to wear demon makeup. Uh, a double was used for the brief flashback scenes depicting a demonic Reagan. However, um, oh, sorry. Max von Sydow was persuaded by Borman to reprise the role of Father Merrin. He was initially reluctant to return because of his concerns over the negative impact of the first Exorcist film. Kitty Wynn uh, signed on to reprise the role of Sharon Spencer for The Exorcist 2 after Ellen Bernstein flatly refused to return as Chris McNeil. Good girl. Borman contacted William O'Malley to reprise his role as Father Joseph Dye from the first film. However, O'Malley was busy and could not take up the part, and the character of Father Dye was changed to Father Philip Lamont. Um, yeah, eventually Richard Burton got the role. Uh, it's bad. It's such a bad film. I don't want to talk about Exorcist 2 anymore. But let's move on to a, a lighter moment in the path. Um, the Exorcist 3 came about in 1990. American psychological horror film directed, uh, written for the screen and directed by William Peter Blatty, based on his 83 novel Legion. It is the third installment in the Exorcist film series. The film stars George C. Scott, Ed Flanders, Jason Miller, Scott Wilson... Uh, Nicole Williamson and Brad Dorif. It's set 15 years after the events of The Exorcist and it ignores the events of The Exorcist 2. Uh, the film follows a character from the original film, Lieutenant William F. Kinderman, who investigates a series of demonic murders in Georgetown that have the hallmarks of the Gemini, a deceased serial killer. Blatty based aspects of the Gemini killer on the real-life Zodiac killer, one of several serial killers who enjoyed the original The Exorcist. 
Blatty, who wrote the 1971 novel and the screenplay for the film adaptation, conceived The Exorcist 3 with director William Friedkin attached to direct. When Friedkin left the project, Blatty adapted the script into the novel Legion. Morgan Creek bought the film rights with Blatty as director. To Blatty's frustration, Morgan Creek demanded extensive last-minute changes, including the addition of an exorcism sequence for the climax. Though some of the original footage appears permanently lost, Scream Factory released a director's cut closer to Blatty's vision in 2016, with footage assembled from various sources. The Exorcist was released in the United States on August 17, 1990. It received mixed reviews from critics and grossed $44 million against a production budget of $11 million. So in 1990, 15 years after Regan McNeil's exorcism in 1975, Father Dyer and Lieutenant William F. Kinderman reminisce about Father Damien Carras. The following night, an incident at a church occurs, indicating the presence of an evil supernatural entity which causes a crucifix to open its eyes. The next scene then follows with the perspective of a man walking on the street speaking of a dream of falling down a long flight of steps, suggesting that someone is committing murders linked to Karras' death. Uh, so, I, I, kind of, I kind of dug out The Exorcist 3 initially because I had seen a particular moment from the film in a number of um, scariest moments in horror, because it's got one of the biggest jump scares, or it's become kind of infamous jump scares in horror. And it is a great scene. And we talked earlier on about scenes being allowed to breathe. There's a scene in this which is kind of almost allowed to breathe too much, um, but that's not a criticism because when the moment comes, you've been lulled into such a sense of false sense of security that it will make you jump, especially the first time you see it. Um, it uh, I picked up the I picked up a copy of it because a lot of people were saying it's great, it's better than the original. Which whenever I hear that, I roll my eyes. Okay, so I think I initially had to buy a copy from like a. German import because for whatever reason at that time they just weren't I think it was out of um print for PAL uh UK releases and PAL um so I had to get a German one which had an English the original English language on it and uh I thought it was decent I thought it was decent the connection to so there's a little fly in the room the connection to the original film I wasn't expecting uh, Jason Miller to be in this film. I was very surprised by that. I also wasn't expecting him to be back playing Father Karras on account of Father Karras dying at the end of uh, at the end of the first film. So the story I remember just finding quite uh, quite interesting how it had occurred. Um, it's it. <laughs> There's some really good stuff in this film. There is some really good stuff in this film. But I feel it does get held back a bit by some weird kind of editing choices. The few the, the exorcism at the end is pretty brutal. Um it's pretty full on. Um But it's still good. It's 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 um It's, 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 
it's it's a good it's a good exorcism but it is very much it's very clearly bolted on it's very clearly chucked in to to appease the studio and i do get it it's an exorcist film but I guess that's missing the point. There has to be an exorcism. I guess you said same Halloween. Why does it have to have Jason? Not Jason. Why does it have to have Michael Myers in it to be a Halloween film? Surely it could just be a horror that's on Halloween. I get that. Um, I guess if you're having an exorcism film, an exorcist film that doesn't have an exorcist in it or an exorcism, yeah, um, I, 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 I see that's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um. <sighs> There's a particular moment in this where one of the possessed grannies has taken these surgical scissors. They're enormous. They're like cleavers. And goes out to kill someone. I can't remember the exact scene, the exact moment. But it goes to try and cut someone's head off. And the, the edit has just got this kind of almost Benny Hill sort of sped up motion of pulling someone's head out, out of the way of the of the blades. And I just always remember just being a bit like, oh, that was a bit... Because <laughs> they've not done that any better, you know. Little niggly things like that, but um, it's an interesting story. Um, and George C. Scott does a good performance as the new Lieutenant Kinderman, because um, I believe the prior actor had passed away at that point. Uh, Lee J. Cobb had died in uh, 76. So William Peter Blatty wrote the... Um, the extra screenplay initially uh, and he came up with the title legion featuring lieutenant kinderman a prominent character in the original exorcist novel though he played a minor role in the film as the protagonist but to conceive legion as a feature film with william friedkin director of the exorcist attached to direct Despite the critical and commercial failure of the previous sequel, Warner Brothers was keen to proceed with Blatty and Freakin's plans for another Exorcist film. Blatty said that everybody wanted Exorcist 3. I hadn't written the script, but I had the story in my head, and Billy Friedkin loved it. Friedkin, however, soon left the project due to conflicting opinions between him and Blatty on the film. The project went into development hell, and Blatty wrote Legion as a novel instead, published in 83. It was a bestseller. Blatty then decided to turn the book in, back into a screenplay. He had a meeting with Steve Jaffe, who had been the publicist for both his original Exorcist novel and the original film. He told Jaffe of the problem he had with getting Legion produced because none of the studios would allow him to direct the film. Jaffe agreed to try and package it for Blatty and secured a deal with the film company that would finally make the film. Jaffe served as associate producer for The Exorcist 3. Uh, film companies Morgan Creek and Karolko both wanted to make the film. Blatty decided upon Morgan Creek after Karolko suggested the idea of a grown-up Regan McNeil giving birth to possessed twins. Fucking hell. Blatty offered directorial responsibilities to John Carpenter. Carpenter was initially interested, but eventually backed out over creative differences. In the book, John Carpenter, The Prince of Darkness, Carpenter explained his reasons for not directing the film. I met with Blatting over the course of a week, perhaps a week and a half. He had director approval, so he was testing and probing me to find out who I was and how smart I was and whether or not I should direct the film. I was ambivalent about the script, primarily because it didn't have an exorcism. Uh, our time together was a lot of fun. We talked about everything. I kept suggesting a third act exorcism and pushing the both of us to come up with some new, exciting and grotesque devil gags. Blatting was resistant. He wanted to direct it and wanted to stay very close to his novel. I respected Blatting, figured out that he really wanted badly to direct the picture and felt that I couldn't get what I needed, so I withdrew from The Exorcist 3. Uh, as per the stipulation for his deal with Morgan Creek, Blatty was to direct the movie himself and it was to be filmed on location in Georgetown. 
Um. So yeah, it's it's a good film. It's Yeah, it is good. It is good. I just don't think it's I think I just think that <sighs> I don't know if it's because of the time that it got released that it maybe just kind of hampers it with that early 90s feel of horror which isn't necessarily a bad thing but it just it doesn't have the feel the prestige feel of the original and i don't know if that's just a harsh mantle to try and live up to and i guess that's potentially why a lot of sequels kind of feel lesser than because they're being compared to something that's a landmark in history. But I would definitely say if you're a fan of The Exorcist and you haven't seen The Exorcist 3, it is definitely worth uh, tracking down a copy. Um, there is apparently talk of a, di a proper director's cut, but uh, a lot of footage was lost of the film. I don't know. I don't know as to what differences there were, um, but apparently there's. Apparently there's a bunch of uh, a, a whole bunch of deleted scenes that. Footage. The search for the footage is ongoing. Will they ever find them? I don't know. Don't know. So. We're going to speed through these next two because they are bottom of the barrel. And I'm talking The Exorcist, The Beginning, and Dominion prequel to The Exorcist. God, what a messy, what a messy pair these two are. What a messy pair. <sighs> so, Exorcist, The Beginning is what we got released first. What was actually being made initially first <coughs> was Dominion prequel to The Exorcist. They're both shit. Um, uh, uh, I mean, we'll just start off talking first about Dominion because of how it kind of they overlap. So, producer James G. Robertson first began developing an untitled prequel to The Exorcist in 1997 with the first draft of the screenplay penned by Terminator 2 Judgment Day co-writer William Wisher Jr. In October 1999, Morgan Creek Productions hired Tom McLaughlin, director of Friday the 13th Part 6 Jason Lives, to helm the film. With the script finally in place, production was slated to occur the following spring in Africa. McLaughlin uh, departed due to issues with the script. 2001, numerous publications reported that John Frankenhelmer was on board as director with a new screenplay revised by Caleb Carr. Liam Neeson was attached to portray the character of Father Lancaster Merrin. William Peter Blatty was not expected to take part in production. After a July 2003 release date was slotted, Frankenhelmer was forced to slip down from the project due to his declining health and was replaced by Paul Schrader. Gabriel Mann joined the cast in 2002 while shooting was expected to take place in the spring. The following month, the film was officially titled Exorcist, The Beginning, and Stellan Skarsgård and Billy Crawford were added to the cast, the former of which replacing Neeson. Principal photography 
on Schrader's film began on November 11th, 2002 in Morocco, with Vittorio Storaro handling cinematography duties. The crew spent six weeks filming in Morocco and then a further two months in Rome. By the time filming had wrapped in February 2003, six writers had contributed to the screenplay and the budget had nearly doubled. An early cut of Schrader's film that ran at 130 minutes was shown to the studio in early 2003. The cut was widely derided due to a lack of scares and gore. The studio had at first opted to re-edit the film to make it scarier, which Schrader opposed. Additional photography was then planned, which again, which according to Schrader, only grew bigger and bigger as time went on. Schrader attested that he faithfully adapted Carl's screenplay on screen and that the studio went through buyer's remorse during production. Later reports indicate that Schrader was at first given the option to re-edit the film. Um... Uh, to re-edit the film twice, with neither cut managing to satisfy the studio. Sheldon Kahn was brought in to recut the film without Schrader's involvement. Schrader was livid and reportedly demanded that Kahn leave. By then, the studio met with other filmmakers um, to direct new scenes to make the film scarier. Kahn was expected for rewrites, but instead the studio opted to buy Schrader and scrap the film entirely in August 2003. Morgan Creek sought for a new director starting in October. Uh, Rennie Harlan was among the directors who met with Robinson, suggested to rewrite the script, cast new actors, and add in more action. The studio was impressed and hired Harlan. Following revisions, uh, following revisions were done by Carl, Skip Wood, Alexi Hawley, and Harlan. Skarsgård was the only cast member retained from the original shoot. In November 2003, special makeup effects artist Gary J. Tunnicliffe confirmed he'd be involved in the film. Filming under Harlan's direction began in winter of uh, 2003 in Rome and concluded um, after 12 weeks. In April 2004, Warner Brothers Home Entertainment began considering releasing Schrader's film direct-to-video with a budget upward of $90 million. Exorcist The Beginning opened on August 20th, 2004 and underperformed at the box office and was critically panned. Schrader admitted to seeing the film on opening weekend with William P Peter Blatty and told The Independent, this is really bad. If it stays this bad, I bet there's a chance I'll get mine resurrected. In September 2004, Morgan Creek began discussions with Schrader on possibly giving the film a limited theatrical run in 2005. The studio hired editor Tim Solano to assemble Schrader's version, but Solano insisted that Schrader be brought back to oversee the editing of his own material. Morgan Creek allocated 35k in a very short amount of time for Schrader to finish his version. The meagre outlay provided by the studio to resume the film's final stage of post-production resulted in a number of compromises. Specifically, Schrader was not given enough money to conduct ADR to bring cinematographer Vittori Storano back to perform the film's colour timing, forcing him and Solano to approximate it themselves, nor to commission an original score for the entire film. Instead, the score was developed piecemeal, with 14 minutes, including a central theme, being composed without payment by Angelo Badalamenti. The final 20 minutes of the film was scored by the American metal band Dog Fashion Disco, the usual choice stemming from Schrader's son's affection for the group. Well, the balance of the score, about an hour's worth, was recycled from Trevor Rambin's work for the Harlan version. In, in addition to contributing compositions, Dog Fashion Disco also finessed the score as a whole to give it a unity, despite its disparate sources. Uh, in March 2005, after a private screening in New York, the film was titled Paul Schrader's Exorcist, the original prequel. Other working titles that time included Exorcist 4 and Dark Angel. By April, the film was officially titled Dominion. 
So I can't remember which one I saw first. I remember... I remember the first version I saw having quite a shocking scene. So it must have been Exodus the beginning because they wanted to ramp up, ramp it up the gore. But it had uh, a, a boy gets attacked by um, hyenas. I'm pretty sure it's hyenas. And it's pretty violent because it's a kid as well. Uh, but a Doctor Edition Maryland's. There's a local charge for the church's curse. Three enter the church, the dam from the procession there. There are two stone also. Statue of the angels on weapons, point spears downward, central outwardly toward heaven. Placing the cross in upside down position. His younger brother, a local boy, is attacked and killed by hyenas that seem to continuously stalk the dig. His younger brother Joseph enters a fugue state after watching his brother get ripped to pieces. Yeah, that that was pretty, pretty full on. That was pretty full on. Um, so yeah, woman gets possessed at the end of that. What happens at the end of Dominion? I can't remember. There's no way I was going to rewatch the film. Yeah, no idea. Can't remember. Anyway, they were shit, quite frankly. Both versions are bad. So for the longest time, it seemed that the Exorcist property seems to be dead and buried. And then the TV series came about. Now, around this time when there were TV shows or films, I would normally, wouldn't even enter my head to watch them, like Lethal Weapon or... Uh, Fatal Attraction was a more recent one. Other things like that, you know. It would never really cross my mind to watch them. But when this came on, I was like, okay, an Exodus TV series. Okay, I'm intrigued. Now, there's a lot to initially scoff at with this. In that we're seeing this kind of corrupt... Vatican or corrupt Catholic Church, there's like a demon fight club or something, or you know, possession, or it's all rampant going around. So you could initially look at those things and go, oh, fucking hell, right, they've gone a bit too far with this, what the hell, blah, 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 blah. But it works. It does generally work and doesn't take focus away from the main plot of the film, the main plot, sorry, of the, the first series which is a woman believing her daughter to be possessed. Turns out it's the wrong daughter that's actually possessed. Um, it's an interesting story that hooks you in. Great performances from Alfonso Herrera, Ben Daniels, uh, and obviously Gina Davis. But it was at the, the halfway point of this season 
when a big reveal occurred and the show's a few years old now and if you it's kind of become old hat that Gina Davis's character is actually Regan McNeil so you've got the connection to the film this is a sequel to the film and it was so well done it was honestly so well done that we ended up getting to the finale and it wrapped up the story of Regan and uh, Chris. Chris McNeil features in this um, in, a, in a satisfactory way. It did, it did make sense. It talked about the different levels of possession. Uh, integration, I believe, was the term used. We see a bit more of uh, the salesman, who is also Captain Howdy, who is also Pazuzu. We don't see the Pazuzu face, which I was a little bit miffed about um because i just thought it was so iconic and unique but it's a different approach it's not necessarily a bad approach it's a different approach in the tv series um and it's quite a good interesting performance because it's just it has this kind of element of charm which could hook you in but there's just that malice underneath season two took a slightly different approach and i believe that the plans for the show were to go for six to seven seasons where the constants are uh, Father Marcus Keane, Father Thomas Ortega, they're the ones you follow, taken on a different uh, case of possession. Season two is decent. It's not as good as the first season. Um, and I do remember the end of the season being quite... quite shocking. Um, yeah, I remember it being quite a shocking ending, but it was still good. I still enjoyed it. Um, I would definitely say I just heard a bang I'm just going to check the security camera I'm not freaking out Hold fire, hold fire, team. Do you know what? It probably was dogs getting into the bins or something. Goodness me, I had the joys of that this morning. Got up super early, went to the gym when I came back. Rubbish all over the floor. Do you know why there's rubbish all over the floor? They've got in the bins, the bastards. You can hear I'm talking about them, that's why they're kicking off. So we had the TV series. Unfortunately, the TV series did get cancelled uh, by Fox after season two. Um, it's a real shame. I think there's some good performances in this. I think it could have continued on. But if anything, you still got series one. Series two is decent. Series one is your continuation if you're not a fan of the new direction or heretic or anything like that then you can have series one as your continuation of the film franchise um 
It was uh, Jeremy Slater wrote the part that Fox and ordered the part to be shot in 2016. The series is described as a propulsive, serialized psychological thriller following two very different men tackling one family's case of horrific demonic possession and confronting the face of true evil. Uh, Brianna Howley was cast as Catherine Rance, while Hannah Kasolka was cast as Casey Rance. Alfonso Herrera and Ben Daniels are cast as Father Tomas and Father Marcus, respectively. While Kurt Aguirian was cast as Father Bennett. Gene Davis was cast as Angela Rance. Davis, Ruck, Kowalski and Howie, and Howie did not return as regular cast members in the second series. Um, there's not too much more information really on that. So we have discussed Believer earlier on in the reviews, and that is the next entry. That's the latest entry in the Exorcist series. Um... Yeah, I mean, the review aggregates on it are poor. They are poor. But two sequels have been confirmed to be in development by the creative team of Green, McBride, Sattler, and Teams. Uh, the first of these sequels, The Exorcist Deceiver, will be released in theatres on April 18th, 2025. After the poor reception of Believer, sources from The Hollywood Reporter claim that there will almost certainly be some degree of creative rethink for the next two films and that Green recently expressed some doubt about his participation. Well, well, well. Mr. Billy Big Bollocks talking up, uh, talking up doing a, a new trilogy and has already got some doubts about returning. So, hmm. We shall see where that goes from, from here. But uh, what we will do is we will then call it a day here on the Ministry of uh, Horrors show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, in regards to the watch party, I am feeling kind of tired, I'm going to be honest. I did get up at quarter past five in the morning this morning. Um, so I think maybe we'll hold fire on the watch party because I'm going to the theatre tomorrow night I probably should get to sleep shortly but, and also I hadn't anticipated the show being two and a half hours long uh, Fran in the chat, season two had some interesting threads that cancellation left hanging like the demons trying to infiltrate this church, that's very true I do keep meaning to re-watch the Exorcist show um, and Fran also, that's cool, got an early start tomorrow yeah, I think a film now on a, on a school night is maybe a bit much, maybe, maybe I might look at doing a weekend stream I need to get back into doing more weekend streams we shall see um well thank you very much for watching uh if you are watching this live on twitch.tv forward slash tezis be sure to give the channel a follow so you will get a notification whenever i go live uh if you're listening to this on podcast platforms apple podcast uh, spotify be sure to uh give the channel a subscribe or follow whatever it is on the platform you watch um and yeah, we are actually going to end it here for for uh, tonight's show. No watch party. Because I'm going to get an early night. But uh, thank you very much. I'll catch you guys later.